I should like to call your attention this morning to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 3, looking particularly this morning at the first verse, but I want to read also a part of the second verse. For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, Lord, now I've tried to read that as it should be read. Let me try again. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, Lord, and on and on and on until the end of verse 13. And then verse 14, For this cause I bow my knees unto the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, as we come to consider this great third chapter of this mighty epistle to the Ephesians, nothing is quite so important as that we should remind ourselves of our context and of our setting. The mind of the great apostle always worked very logically. He wasn't an intuitive thinker, he was a logical thinker. He doesn't just jut out ideas. He always has a plan and a scheme. However, as I'm going to show you, however much he may depart from it, here and there, fundamentally, he always comes back to it. And, of course, the very word for, at the beginning of this chapter, reminds us of the connection. It is an advantage to have these uh, New Testament epistles divided up into chapters, but we must never forget that originally they were not thus divided. This is a letter. This is a paragraph, if you like. I doubt whether there was even a paragraph at this point. But the authorities who did this work uh, felt that they should divide it up in this way, and uh, on the whole it's valuable, but sometimes it can be a real hindrance. Because you have the idea that a new chapter means a new subject. Well, here, very clearly and obviously, it doesn't. For this cause, because of this, what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about uh, what he's just been saying. And what he's just been saying is that uh, the astounding truth which has come to light in the gospel of Jesus Christ is that the Gentiles have been made one body with the Jews in Christ Jesus. I mean those who have believed the gospel. That was the whole message, you remember, of that second chapter that these Ephesians who had been dead in trespasses and sins, who were uh, strangers from the covenants of promise and aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, without, God, without hope and without God in the world, had been made nigh. Not only that, of this twain, one new man had been made, so making peace. And then you remember the mighty doctrine about the nature of the Christian church at the end of the second chapter, that, uh, the, that we're all together now, as fellow citizens with the saints. We are members of the household of God, and we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are made a holy temple for the Lord to dwell in. And that is true of Gentiles and Jews. All one middle wall of partition has been broken down and abolished. All the enmity has gone. This amazing peace has been brought to pass 
through the blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now he's been expounding all that to them. And he says, now then, because of that, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles. And then suddenly he seems to stop. He was obviously going to say something. Because of all this, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. And he stops, he hesitates. Now I say it's quite clear that he was going to say something. But he doesn't say it until you come to verse 14, where you get exactly the same formula again. For this cause, I. And then he goes on to tell us how he is praying for them and what he is praying for them. In other words, we have from verse 2 to the end of verse 13 here a long digression so that really as you come to the end of the first verse and the beginning of the second you should put in a kind of dash introducing this long digression from the beginning of the second verse to the end of the 13th verse. And in the digression, as you noticed from the reading and as you remember, he gives them an account of his own ministry, his calling, his office, and what is the object and the purpose of it all. Then having done that, having finished with that, he comes back again and now he rarely says the thing that he was setting out to say in the first verse. Now there is the kind of structural analysis of this particular chapter. And it is most important that we should bear that in mind uh, quite obviously. But now the thing that confronts us this morning is this. Why did the apostle do this? Why did he suddenly stop like that? And then go on into this digression and then come back. Why the digression at all? Why did he for the time being interrupt his own argument? Why is still perhaps more important did he thus become guilty of what the purists and the pedants call a blemish in his style? That, you know, is the criticism that's brought against Paul as a stylist, that he is so constantly guilty of what they call these anacholuther. What is an anacholuthon? Well, an anacholuthon is this. It is that you suddenly, as it were, seem to forget what you are saying and go off after something else and perhaps never even come back to what you'd intended saying. That's an anacholuthon. In other words, instead of uh, your style flowing on steadily and easily and uh, quietly and perfectly, suddenly there, there, there are these interruptions, these interjections, these digressions, these parentheses. It's bad style, thoroughly bad style. And that is the charge, I say, that is so constantly brought against the great apostle, that he was very guilty of that. And he certainly is guilty of it at this particular point. Now the question I'm asking is, why did he do this? What led him to do it? What was it that seems to have gripped him and suddenly moved him to introduce the digression? Well, there's no real difficulty about answering that question. He really gives the answer himself in verse 13, which must be taken with verse 1 and 2 if we are really to understand it. He says, Wherefore, 
I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. There you see he's ended it all. That's what he's been talking about. Wherefore, having said all this to you, I trust, he says, I desire you not to faint at my tribulations for you, but rather to regard them as your own glory. In other words, what is responsible for the digression is one of the most wonderful and glorious things about the great apostle. It was his great heart, his great pastoral heart. It was his concern for others, which is, I say, his most outstanding characteristic always. In other words, you see, he wasn't setting out here to write a theological treatise. That wasn't his object at all. There is no epistle, perhaps, that has got more theology and doctrine in it, as we've seen and as we shall continue to see. Uh, yet, uh, nothing is more important than that we should always remember that he was not sitting down to write a theological treatise. Still less was he uh, setting out to produce a literary masterpiece. He wasn't interested in things like that at all. He was writing with a purely pastoral motive. He was writing in order to help these people, to encourage them in the faith, to establish them, to lead them into the higher, higher heights and the deeper depths of this wonderful salvation. And of course, because that was his objective and that was his real motive. These questions of style and form were mere irrelevances to him. He paid no attention at all to them. What is the style in comparison with the fact that these people rarely come to understand the truth? What's the point even of teaching them theology if they're going to break down on some practical little matter? No, no, all these things must be taken together and the apostle invariably does so. Now we might very well spend the rest of our morning with this. I don't propose to do so. But I would say a word like this in passing to any preacher or to anyone who hopes to be a preacher, or is training to be a preacher who happens to be in this congregation. I often think that what accounts very largely for the present state of the Christian church is that those of us who are privileged to preach have rather forgotten the apostolic method and the apostolic pattern. I don't quite know when it happened. I think it was somewhere about the second quarter of the last century in preaching. Preaching began to become scholarly. Preaching began to pay great attention to literary style and literary form. I suppose it was the publication of books that did it. I have no doubt, finally, that the publication of sermons and of books has been a real disservice to the cause of Christ. Because more and more, the attention has been given to the form and to the style and to the diction and the language and the literary quotations and allusions now, it's a very fascinating study, this. If you work through the long history of the Christian church, you will find that that has happened many, many times. And every new revival and reformation has had to break through that. Now, that happened at the Protestant Reformation. 
The Roman Catholic method of preaching, that old scholastic method, marshalling its philosophical arguments, putting these up against those, it had become absolutely arid and barren spiritually, wonderfully from the inter wonderful from the intellectual standpoint, but rarely conveyed no truth and life to the people. And so Luther and Kelvin and others brought in an entirely new style of preaching, an expository method. Go on to the next century. You will find at the beginning of the 17th century that preaching had become mainly literary in form. You'll see it in the works of men like Bishop Launcelot Andrews and Jeremy Taylor and others. Oh, wonderful style. It's, it's marvelous prose. Some people would say that Jeremy Taylor's the finest English stylist uh, that this country's ever produced. It's, it's marvelous from the standpoint of form and diction and balance. Never any anachalutha. Never any of these digressions, parentheses. No, no, it's, it's perfect. And the classical quotations, quotations in Latin and in Greek, always perfectly set forth. That was the position. But the life of the church was dead. And that was the thing that was given to the Puritans to see. That what was needed was a living presentation of truth at the expense of style and all these things. And then, you know, in the next century you had exactly the same thing once more. In this country and in America. And the result is that you will find constantly that uh, people criticize the great Jonathan Edwards for his appalling and atrocious literary style. His style is not good, but the truth is there. And the life and the power are there. And his preaching was under the unction of the Spirit and led to glorious revival. Well, very well, I just say that as a glancing, passing remark. The great apostle, you see, with his heart of love, his pastoral interest, his concern that men and women should be built up in the faith, Oh, he doesn't hesitate to go off, as it were, at a tangent, but he comes back again. He takes up his theme. But why all this, I ask? Why did he do it? Why the digression? Well, here is the answer. He knew that these Ephesians would be troubled at the fact that he was a prisoner in Rome. When he wrote this epistle, he was a prisoner. And he knew perfectly well that they would be troubled about this and they would be concerned about it, and they'd be anxious about it. Not only that, he knew something else, and this is much more important. He knew very well that his sufferings and his tribulations as a prisoner might very well become a stumbling block to them. You see, he knew that there was a danger of their arguing like this. They would say to themselves, well, now, when Paul was with us and when he preached to us, he told us about the blessings of the Christian life. He told us how as a child of God he was always safe and nothing could ever harm him. That Christ had said the very hairs of your head are all numbered. He showed us these glorious possibilities in the Christian life. But here he is now a prisoner. And suffering as a prisoner. Is that Christianity? Does God allow his own people to suffer like this? Now, he knew that they would be thinking and arguing like that, as Christian people have always tended to do. And that this might really stumble them in their faith. And though he's going to set out this tremendous possibility of the Christian life, which we've got from verse 14 to the end of the chapter, Paul was uh, sufficiently wise as a teacher and knew human nature so well that he knew this that it would avail him nothing to show them the higher reaches of the Christian life 
If they are made doubtful of the whole thing because of the fact that he was at that moment a prisoner and suffering in Rome. In other words, there is nothing that has so frequently stumbled God's people as this question of suffering. Why is it that God allows his own people to endure trials and tribulations? Why should a distinguished servant like this of all others ever be allowed to be a prisoner? Now, you will find, therefore, that this theme is often dealt with in the scriptures. This apostle in particular takes it up very frequently. You read the epistle to the Philippians, you'll get it there. Again, in the first two chapters, he goes into it in a most extraordinary manner. He does it in writing to Timothy particularly. That seems to have been Timothy's perpetual problem. Why is it that the apostle Paul is thus being allowed to suffer? It looks even as if he's going to be put to death. Why does God allow this? Paul was never more needed than now, and here he is on the verge of death. Why this? And he couldn't understand it, and it always depressed him. That's why Paul has to write his letters to him. Well, now then, the great apostle takes up that very theme. That's the business of this digression. It is, if you like, a, a great exposition of this particular problem of the suffering of the godly and the righteous. Why it is that Christian people have to endure trials and tribulations in this world. Now then, how does he help them? What's his method? Well, you notice that negatively, he doesn't just write to them a general statement. He doesn't merely send them a general word of comfort. He doesn't just write, sit down and write and say, well, this is of course most unfortunate. I'd got my plans, I'd got my proposals, but well, here it is. And you know, in a world and in a life like this, these things will happen, but it's all right. Don't be too troubled. I'm sure that everything eventually is going to be all right. That isn't his statement at all. It isn't that. Well, what is it? Well, what he does, you notice, is this. He tells them how he himself looks at it. He tells them his own attitude to it, his own reaction to it. And then he goes on to say, well now then, you see, as I'm looking at it, you should look at it. He teaches them, he takes them through the whole thing and enables them to reason it out even as he is reasoning it himself. And I'm calling your attention to it, not only and not merely, because it is an essential part of the exposition of this great epistle. But because here we have, once and forever, the great principles which should always govern our thinking as we face this vexed and difficult problem. I may be preaching now to someone who is undergoing trials and tribulations, and you may be troubled, and you may be asking, why? Why does God allow this? Or it may be somebody who is very dear to you. Or you may see something in the church. And this may be shaking your faith. Here then I say is the great exposition on this whole question. So that if there is anybody here who is suffering because he's a Christian, here is the way to look at it. Whatever persecution you may be suffering, it may be illness or something or some disappointment, I don't care what it is, here is the way in which it has to be faced. Well now then, what is the method? How does the apostle himself look at all this? 
Well, here are the answers. You notice that there's not a word of complaint here. There's not a suspicion of a grumbling. He doesn't for a second allow such questions to enter into his mind or heart as to is this fair, is this right, I've served God for years, I've traveled, I've been indefatigable, I've suffered, I've uh, brought myself to be an old man whereas I'm still really young in years. Why? Never a suspicion of it, not a word. No complaints, no grumbles. Secondly, you notice that he doesn't just uh, resign himself to it with a kind of stoical fortitude. Oh, how many do that? But there's nothing of that here at all. He doesn't just write and say, well, you know, you've got to take the bad with the good in a world like this. You can't get a rose without a thorn. You've just got to make up your mind that life is mixed. And because it's mixed, don't grumble and complain. You've had a good time. Well, don't whimper now. If things are beginning to go wrong, look here, be balanced, be steady, pull yourself together, be a man. Put a little courage into it. Have a firm upper lip. Not a suspicion of that. That's stoicism, that's paganism. That's the world's courage. It's got nothing to do with Christianity. It's almost the very antithesis of it. Well, what is it then? What does he do? Well, I suggest to you that if you read this chapter again quietly, you'll come to this conclusion that the apostle seems to be rejoicing in it. There's a note of exultation here. There's a note of triumph. And you see, he says to these people at the end in verse 13, Wherefore I desire that ye faint not at my tribulation, at my sufferings and tribulations for you, which is your glory. He wants these people to be more than conquerors, as he is more than conqueror. He's not just putting up with it. He's going beyond. He's exulting. He's triumphant. He's jubilant. There's something marvelous about this. He says, if you can but see it. Now, this is again a very characteristic bit of teaching in the New Testament. I've already reminded you that the apostle says the same thing in the epistle to the Philippians. Let me read it to you, the first chapter, the twelfth verse. Again, he's writing as a prisoner. He says, But I would ye should understand, brethren, that the things which happened unto me have fallen out rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Don't waste any tears on me or on my condition, says the apostle. I want you to see these things in such a way that you'll see as I see that all these things that have happened have happened rather unto the furtherance of the gospel. Thank God for it, he says in a sense. Then in writing to Timothy, as I've already told you, he's always got the same note. God, he says, hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Thou, therefore, my son, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. If we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Yea, he goes beyond that and he says this. Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. That's the doctrine. But you know, this is not a doctrine that is confined to the Apostle Paul. You get exactly the same thing in the first epistle of Peter, in the fourth chapter. Let me read you some verses beginning with verse 12. Listen to Peter saying it. Beloved, 
Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. Listen then. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. For the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part he is evil spoken of, but on your part he is glorified. Now then, there is the essence of our teaching. The apostle wants these Ephesians so to look at this imprisonment of his and his sufferings in such a way that they really shall see the glory shining through it all. And they'll end by glorying in it. With Peter they shall say, happy are we because of these things. Now then, how does he arrive at that? How does he bring himself and them to that position? And here is the most practical thing of all. He doesn't do it because he just happens to have been born like that and had got that sort of temperament. His temperament was the exact opposite. Paul was a man who could be easily depressed by nature. He was morbid and introspective and sensitive. It isn't that. What is it then? Well, he's got a method, and the method is this. He just asks questions. And then having asked the questions and noted the answer, he works out an argument. That is his invariable method. And he does it here in this digression. Now that is the secret always in these matters. And the first thing that you and I have to do in this Christian life is to learn that secret. Instead of allowing things to overwhelm us and depress us and make us sit down and commiserate with ourselves, we stop and we look at it, we ask our questions to the thing itself, not about God, but about the thing itself. We note the answers, then we work out our argument. Put the thing into its context, put it into its setting, relate it to the whole of the Christian faith and the Christian life, and then you will find that an argument will emerge. What is the argument? Let me show you. Here he is, a prisoner. He is well aware of that fact. And uh, they also are well aware of that fact. But now here are the questions. How and why is he a prisoner? What's the cause of his imprisonment? See, he doesn't just sit down and commiserate with himself in the cell or as he's chained to the soldier on each side. No, no. He says, now I, I must inquire into this. I must look, why am I here at all? Why am I a prisoner? How has it come to pass? What is the explanation? What's the reason? And then he begins to give us his answers. And this morning I can only look at the answers that are given in the first verse. The first thing he says is this. I am not an ordinary prisoner. His way of putting that is this. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, the prisoner of Jesus Christ. You see, he's already solved his problem, isn't he? He isn't Rome's prisoner. He's not in, in prison because of the great, mighty Roman Empire. He isn't Nero's prisoner. Nero's the emperor, incidentally. But he's not Nero's prisoner. Oh, no. He, he's not in prison because of Roman law. He's not in prison like all the other prisoners are because of some misdemeanor or because of some crime. Well, why is he in prison? 
And he says, the answer is this. I am the prisoner of Christ, the Christ Jesus. What a tremendous thing this is. Have you noticed about this man that everything that is true of him is always in terms of Christ? He is the apostle of Christ, the servant of Christ. He is the minister of Christ, bond slave of Christ. Notice his terms. Watch him especially in the introductions to his great epistles. And everything is in relation to Christ and because of Christ. And here he doesn't hesitate to say that he is in prison for one reason only. I am in prison because I am in Christ. He is Christ's prisoner. What does he mean by that? Well, let me put it like this. This is probably what he said to himself. He said, if I were still the man I once was, if I were still Saul of Tarsus, if I were still that Pharisee, that blaspheming, injurious person that I once was, if I were still a teacher of the Jewish law and all the comments of the scribes and the authorities upon it, if I were still what I once was as Saul of Tarsus, I wouldn't be in this prison. And that's an absolute fact. I would still be at liberty. There's no doubt. There is no question about that at all. Well, why am I here then? Now you see how he works it out. Why am I here? Well, I'm here for this reason. I am here because of that which happened to me that noonday on my way to Damascus. That's the thing that's put me into prison. And you see, once you begin to think like this, you forget prison bars and cells and discomfort and everything else. You're now going back and he's reminding himself of that amazing thing, how he saw the face of Christ looking down upon him and the voice. The prison sends him back to think of his conversion and the amazing grace of God and the love of Christ. How though he had been that blasphemous, injurious person, but Christ had nevertheless loved him and had died for him on the cross to take his sins away, to reconcile him to God and to make him a child of God. All that came back to him. He's a prisoner of Jesus Christ. It's because that's happened he's here. And then the commission that Christ gave to him, he's going to elaborate that. We shall see it later. How that by revelation, he said, he made it plain to me. Christ said to him, look here, I want you to be a minister and a witness, both to the people and to the Gentiles to whom I am now going to send you, that you may testify unto them the commission. It all came back to him. And if that's the sort of thing that occupies you in a prison, it becomes a palace. You're in heaven, though you may be suffering physically. That's his method, you see. He is Christ's prisoner. But he doesn't only mean that by it. He also means this. That he is rarely suffering for Christ's sake. Not for his own sake. He is not there because of anything he personally has done wrong. Well, why is he there? Well, he is there because he's a preacher of the gospel, because of his zeal for the name and the glory of Christ. He is literally, rarely suffering as a Christian and because he's a Christian and for the sake of Christ. Now, this to him was always one of the most marvelous things of all. 
Again, listen to him putting that to the Philippians. In Philippians 1.29 For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for his sake. Oh, he says to those Philippians don't grumble and complain if you are suffering for Christ's sake. Rather, regard it as the supreme honor of your lives. And that was the way, you know, these early Christians always looked at this. They thanked God that at last they'd been accounted worthy to suffer for his name's sake. They did that even when they were dying in the arena, being mauled by the lions. The supreme honor, the final crown of glory was martyrdom. That's the way to look at it. Here is where the glory and the triumphing come in. But you know there is something further again. His suffering was to Paul an absolute proof of his calling and his discipleship. You remember the way in which this is argued out? I've already quoted it once to you. He says to Timothy, Yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Now that's a tremendous statement. It comes to us like this, that if we are not in some shape or form suffering persecution for Christ's sake, we are not Christians. You believe the scriptures, the word of God? You believe that Paul is an inspired apostle? There is a categorical statement. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus, you look it up for yourselves in the second epistle to Timothy. Yea, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Therefore, if I'm suffering persecution in some shape or form, it's a proof of my discipleship. James, you remember, puts that positively when he says, Count it all joy, my brethren, when he fall into diverse trials. Why? Well, it is a proof, he says, of your calling and of your discipleship. Read the first chapter of the epistle of James and there you'll find it reasoned and argued out. So this is a tremendous thing. He is the prisoner of Jesus Christ in that sense, but yet another sense. Have you, I wonder, ever noticed one of the most amazing things this apostle ever said in the epistle to the Colossians? In the first chapter and the 24th verse, let me read it who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. I have sometimes thought that that is the profoundest statement that even the Apostle Paul ever made. You notice what he says. He says, I regard my sufferings in my body in this way. I am filling up what remains of the sufferings of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. In other words, he now has entered into the sufferings of Christ. You remember in Philippians 3, he's prayed for it in this way. That I might know him and the fellowship of his sufferings He needs the power of the resurrection to do that. Yes, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. Here it is. These sufferings, he says, I am filling up. I'm 
filling up to the brim, as it were, what is left behind, what remains of the sufferings of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. This is tremendous. I'm in prison. Don't waste a tear on me, he says. Don't faint. This is the most glorious thing. I'm having the greatest privilege of my life. I'm making up what remains of these sufferings. Or I could put that in a different way by putting it like this to you. He is having now the great and the high privilege of following in the very footsteps of Christ. Peter again brings that out, you remember? You read the second chapter of the first epistle of Peter. It's again a great exposition of this. Follow in his steps, he says, who did no wrong, neither was guile found in his mouth, who when he suffered he threatened not. That's the privilege. We are following in his steps. So the apostle says he's a prisoner of Christ for these reasons. And one final one I think is this. It was his loyalty to the message that Christ gave him that was the immediate cause of his imprisonment. But let me put that in this form. You notice he says, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. Now a better way of translating that would be this. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, for, on behalf of you Gentiles. What's he mean? Well, this is the second great argument, the last one we're looking at this morning. Why precisely is he in prison? Oh, I'll tell you. For this cause, the thing is referred to. The thing that really put Paul into prison was that he went around preaching that the gospel of Jesus Christ was as much for the Gentiles as for the Jews. And that was the thing of all things that infuriated the Jews. If you go and read the account of Paul's arrest and imprisonment in the book of the Acts of the Apostles, chapters 21, 22 and following, you will find that that was the direct cause of his being arrested and put into prison and being sent to Rome. He would persist in preaching that the Gentiles were to be fellow heirs. If he hadn't said that, they'd have let him go on preaching. But that to the Jew was absolutely intolerable. It was utterly impossible. So they arrested him, they nearly killed him, and they finally handed him over to the Roman authorities for this cause. So what he's really saying to these Ephesian Gentiles is this, you see. He said, you know, I'm really suffering for your sakes. It was because I wouldn't let them stop me. It was because I persisted in saying that the Gentiles were to become the children of Abraham by faith exactly like the Jews. It was because I kept on saying that, that I am where I am. I am therefore suffering for your sakes on your behalf, that you might have the liberty of the gospel. I am in bonds. I am in prison. If I'd withheld that aspect of the truth, I would still be free. But I want you to know, he says, that I'm suffering gladly for your sakes. I'm rejoicing in it. I'm in prison. You are enjoying the glorious liberty of the children of God. Oh, what a man. What a Christian. You know, some of us would be a great deal more popular in the church as well as in the world if we just didn't say certain things. If you want to be popular, you must never be negative. 
Paul didn't want to be popular. He was given the truth and he preached the whole truth. He withheld nothing. If he'd only withheld this, all would have been well. But no, no, he says, I was told to preach it. He sent me to the Gentiles as well as to the Jews. So he's suffering gladly for their sakes. But not only that, he really does suggest here that it's a good thing for them. Here it is in verse 13 again. I desire that he faint not at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. There's a glory for you in all this. Well, how does it come to pass? Well, here, you see, we are looking at a tremendous theme. What is the value of all the martyrs for us? You've read of the martyrs, you've read the lives of the saints and the martyrs. What's the precise value of the death of the martyrs? Why should we read them? Why should we read Fox's book of martyrs? Why should we read about the covenanters? Why should we read of all men who've laid down their lives for the Christian faith? Why? Well, here is the answer. He tells these Ephesians that his sufferings should reassure them with respect to the truth about themselves. Why is Paul in prison? Well, he's in prison for this reason. He is so absolutely certain of this message that Christ has died for the Gentile as well as for the Jew that though he knows it's going to mean prison and probably death, he nevertheless has preached it. What a tremendous strengthening of the faith of the Ephesians that should lead to. So they sit back and they say, well, this is marvelous. He must be absolutely certain of it. He would never uh, undergo suffering like this if there was any doubt about it at all. But he's so sure about it as he tells us that rather than withhold it or recant it, he'll suffer anything for it. Well, this must be right. This is the truth about us. We are made one body with the Jews in Christ Jesus. So you see, his suffering focuses attention upon this most glorious aspect of the gospel from their standpoint. And that is why, you see, he goes on to tell them in detail how it was that Christ revealed it to him personally, individually, in that special manner. Well, then, the second thing that works out is this. They are being reminded that Christ has died for them. And that his servant Paul is now in his turn suffering for them and is ready even to die for them and regards it as a privilege. They were most of them but slaves and very ordinary and common people. But this is what he's telling them. The Son of God died for you and I consider it a great privilege to be in prison for you. You know, when a man like Paul tells you a thing like that, why, you want to stand up and sing and shout. You feel unworthy, and yet you say, oh, the privilege, the wonder and the glory of it all. And then you see, in suffering in this way, what a wonderful example he gives them as to how these things should be faced. Is there anything that is more strengthening to faith than to read of the death of the martyrs If ever you feel doubtful or hesitant about the Christian faith, if ever you feel the world attracting you, if ever you are disposed to ask, is there anything in it? Should I suffer persecution as a student or in my profession or in my business? Is it worth it? Is it true? I say, go and read the end, the death of the martyrs. Mark the end of the perfect men. Consider them that had the rule over you. 
says the author of the epistle to the Hebrews in the 13th chapter, considering the end of their conversation. Look at the way they died. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There's nothing that so strengthens faith. These men who faced the tyrants and the lions, gory men. What was it? Oh, they knew him and the reality of truth. So that I end by saying this. The apostle is telling these Ephesians that if they but see the meaning of his imprisonment truly, if they but view these things in the right way, it will bring them into a knowledge of the glory of the Christian life such as they've never had before. You see what Paul is saying is this. That the Christian life to him is everything. It is all and in all. It's so glorious and so wonderful that it's much more precious to him than his personal liberty. It is much more precious to him than life itself. What he's really saying is what he said to the Philippians in these words, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain, that I might be with him, which is far better. Well, there is the beginning of the Apostle's argument. God willing, we shall continue our consideration of the argument next Sunday morning, but there are the elements, there are the fundamental principles. Are you rejoicing in tribulations? Are you discouraged by what's happening to you or by what's happening to the church? If you're suffering as a Christian, I say, here are the arguments. Look at them, believe them, apply them. And then by standing up and thanking God and glorying in the fact that unto you also it has been, has been given on the behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles. Uh, if you have understood it. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust audio library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.